0: Hello and welcome back to episode 26 of Double Reel. This is the second reel of our monthly magazine-style podcast for film nerds. Hopefully you've caught up with the first reel, had a brief intermission and refuelled ready to take on this mighty second instalment of Nerdy Film Chat. If you haven't caught the first reel yet, please do go back to your app and download and listen to it so you're up to date with all the features we've covered already this month. These include our roundup of news and spotlight on some of the films we watched this month, our classic and recommended feature, The City of Lost Children, our hidden gem, Pump Up the Volume." The one that got away about Claire Noto's The Tourist, and our remake Hate Watch of Rollerball. Now in Real 2, we bring you our big conversation where we tackle a weighty topic and give it a fuller, i.e., longer discussion. First, a very warm welcome back to my co host, James Adamson. Happy to be back, mate. Let's do this. This month, we're discussing real people whose lives are so interesting or remarkable that they deserve to be made into a film. And. The first thing i just wanted to you know what we're going to do is i've got three nominees for for their own biopic uh, and james has got three and we're just going to go through them and, and see what they sound like and i think in, in that it'll kind of take us through you know how do people choose let's do a biopic about this person you know how do they choose how to do the story what to make and and so on um you know what the pitfalls are but from your, your point of view you know, biopics are like an awards favourite. The number of people who win an Oscar or nominated for an Oscar for playing a real-life character is 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 pretty high. It's a big proportion of the nominations every every year. Are you a fan of biopics?
1: If they're done right, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting to see how these people were, uh, you know, lived the type yeah. of person that they were, the problems that they had going on in their lives because lives are miserable and you get joy in seeing other people's... Uh, Misery, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, what do you look for in a good biopic? What jumps out at you is saying, oh, well, I want to watch that and I don't want to watch that?
1: Um, not making it, not being too speculative with it. So, you know, obviously that Diana film that came out, oh no, Spencer, that was god-awful because they made it about um, Princess Diana being completely lally. It's got to just follow the... Um
0: well, well, there's a level of speculative that's acceptable, isn't there? I mean, if you think about One Night yeah. in Miami, that's not a typical biopic in the sense that it's about Like four or five real people? Is it four? It's Ali, Malcolm X, uh, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke. It's four guys, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, So it's not entirely your typical biopic. Um, But that, that has a lot of speculation in it about what those guys talked about and did that night. But... I 100%, you know, well, I'm sure it can't, because they're imagining it, it can't be 100% right, but I totally believe it. It's totally consistent with those characters. No,
1: so yeah, so what I mean by speculative, I don't mean being speculative about the dialogue because nobody knows what was truly said. What I mean is, don't have Muhammad Ali having ghosts or like having visions of, you know, made up, psychological anomalies in his brain. Yeah,
0: I, I think your margin for error on that version of a story is is very, very like limited. And if, if that doesn't seem in keeping with that character and, and, and you don't kind of, you know, if there might be some way to make that story work, but you've got, you know, you could fall off that tightrope really easily. Um, yeah. The thing that b- bugs me about biopics, and it doesn't bug everyone, is is how much they make things up or deviate from the facts or twist and turn the facts to kind of make it work as a film that that tends to grind my gears a little bit. I can, I can live with, well, they compress three characters into one because they've only got two hours, do you know what I mean? Or they find a way to tell. Things did actually happen, and they more or less happened this way, but we've done a couple of things to kind of get that story across to you. When, for example, in um, two films I like overall, The Social Network and The Damned United they make up things that didn't happen or change things from how they actually happened to tell a story that they're trying to tell. And I just feel if you're trying to make a certain point or say that a certain story was like this or a certain character was like that, if you have to make up what happened and, and change the facts to the opposite of what actually happened, I don't think you've got the story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that kind of deviation from the facts bothers me. And I think that's that's the tricky bit because the reality is, is that if you, if you have to kind of tinker with the facts to tell that story, maybe that film doesn't deserve a biopic. Do you know what I mean? Maybe, a do- like you said you said yourself, maybe it'd be better as a documentary sometimes.
1: Yeah, I think a good biopic also has to be appropriate. So Eddie Redmayne pretending to have motor neurone disease for an hour and a half is not acceptable. It just isn't. Yeah. Um,
0: life before motor neurone disease, as, re- as Stephen absolutely. Hawking might have been better.
1: Focus on his, you know, his life beforehand, where it was... Uh, mm-hmm all the things that were uh, you know, going on in his life in terms of being a young student at, was it Oxford he went to, mm-hmm. or Cambridge? Yeah, one of them, yeah. Um, that has to be appropriate. Um, None of it isn't. If you can't make it appropriate, you can't be too speculative, you have to start making things up. You're right. Let's make it a documentary.
0: Because there's been some fantastic documentaries about real-life subjects, you know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Um, there's some listener messages which I found really interesting. So the idea is that, other people had about what would make a good film because I think the other thing about what's going to make a good biopic is that the main subject's got to be someone that you would, you know, really like to see a movie about. Um and some of these suggestions I think are are in I mean I'm quite excited about your suggestions when you when you told me what you were doing. Um and I think that's the the key is is that oh really I'd like to see that person's life. Yeah. And sometimes you've never heard of a person but when you hear a film's coming out about them and you get a bit of a summary of their life you go oh really okay um, let's give that a go because that sounds fascinating what, what they got up to. But um, here's some listener messages about the, the, the biopics they'd like to see. Uh, Ricky says, would love to see a film about the real story of Vlad the Impaler. He was yes. the inspiration for Dracula, but he had his own very interesting life. That's a, that's a good call. Uh, Bex says, uh, King Eric Seventh of Denmark. He was the king of Denmark around 1400. He was forced from the throne and went off, uh, became a pirate and used his pirate fleet to hit back at his enemies. Now that's like an adventure story, but it's real life. Um, a guy called uh, Pete says William Marshall served five kings, went on a crusade, fought the French. Probably fought better, the French, yeah. Probably better for a Netflix series. Um, obviously, I said to people, look, try and find people who haven't already had a biopic. Uh, and this uh, Pete says this character had a someone loosely based on him in a film called Ironclad, but that film's shite, so it doesn't count.
1: That's all the one with James Pure for you? That? Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, R.J. says B.B. King had a really interesting life and great music. So that would be like his, his call for a music biopic, right? You know, you want the music in the movie for that, don't you? Um, P.O.H. says Thomas Cochrane's life would make an action-packed war film. The British naval commander in the Napoleonic Wars, so effective the French nicknamed him the sea Wolf. dismissed from the Navy in 1814 for stock exchange fraud, so he went off to South America and organized and led the rebel navies of Chile and Brazil. Uh, inspired Horatio Hornblower and the Jack Aubrey character from Master and Commander. So he sounds like a, an interesting character. Uh, some people I've never heard of. No idea. For, um, Pinball eighty eight says so Simo Heja. I've probably pronounced that name wrong. A Finnish sniper from World War Two or the forties, believed to have killed five hundred enemy soldiers yes, in the Winter War girl. against White the Soviet Death. Union. I do like a sniper movie, so I could I could sit through that.
1: He deliberately didn't use sights because it gave away his positions. This guy was shooting Russians um, from five hundred meters away with no scope.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely someone you want to see. He was. A, the last um m king says uh, peter Freuchen. um i've, I've not heard of them but um apparently he was a six foot seven inches uh, dane uh he was an arctic explorer who led a thousand kilometer dog sled expedition across the ice lost a leg to fr- frostbite uh during which he am- amputated his own toes he wrote he wrote over a dozen books he wrote and starred in an oscar-winning film and was part of the danish resistance against the nazis um, he was a massive, big, bustly bloke, and whenever he witnessed anti-Semitism, he claimed to be Jewish himself, even though he wasn't, and basically said, what are you going to do about it? And no one would ever fight him. Well, um, the Nazis put him in prison, gave him a death sentence, but there was nothing uh, that was nothing to a man who had once escaped from being trapped in a blizzard shelter by making a tool from his own frozen shit that he used to cut his way out. So unsurprisingly, he escaped from the Nazis too. More surprisingly, after the war, Freuchen went on to win the $64,000 question quiz on American TV. I mean, that guy's had such a life. If you look him up, there's an amazing photo of him in a giant fur coat, and I don't approve of wearing fur, but this guy, he's just... The main problem you get is who the fuck could play him. Basically, Alexander Skarsgård would need to um, go on steroids for about eight months, and he's probably the nearest person he could play. Yeah, yeah. Um, Red Stripe says Mansa Musa, the ruler of the Mali Empire 900 years ago and is probably the richest man who ever lived not much is known about him but a film set in that time and place would be very different from the usual that is an intriguing idea Um, JSA says I'm amazed there's never been a film biopic of Leonardo Da Vinci given all he did in his life that's true there's never been a proper Da Vinci um, biopic Uh, this is true there's a mini series from Italy in the 70s which sort of did it but not a proper movie Uh, Graham says Hedy Lamar she's an extraordinary woman she was an Austrian born actress who fled the Nazis became a star in America and invented technology which led to the development of Bluetooth and GPS Uh, Mick says Adrian Carton-Devart a Belgian-Irish officer who served in the armed forces he served in the Boer War in 1900 the First World War and the Second World War shot and wounded multiple times blinded in his left eye survived two plane crashes uh, tunnelled out of a prisoner of war camp um after the first world war he said frankly i enjoyed that war um he rose from the rank of trooper to lieutenant general on the war of the victoria cross i mean you, you, you couldn't make that up if you made up that character people would think you've been over the top jasper says marvin Gaye, what a life um ghost says eddie chapman um which there's been a film done a zigzag. about yeah but there's already been a film about him but that was done before all the good stories about him had been declassified and, he- and Helen says Ada Lovelace. She was one of the one of the people, um, an early uh, female pioneer of computing, you know, and helped invent the first computer. Um, so there's obviously, you know, people out there with a big interest in seeing biopics done about interesting people. And there's there's quite a lot of interesting people who've never had a movie made about them, which would be interesting to see. I mean, Ada, Ada Lovelace was featured in an episode of Doctor Who. but That's not the same as having a biopic about your own life. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah so those are the other suggestions that those people come up with I hope our suggestions live up to that um, what I was going to do is we've got three each um, and you know we checked beforehand that we weren't doing the same ones we almost did because I had one of yours as one of my possibilities and I'm glad I didn't do them now because you're doing them that's great yes. um, and what we're going to do is just we're going to take it in turns to describe this person um, probably to say would it be better as a film or as a series depending on what on their life and what you do and if you've got an idea of the the director that would do a good job of this movie, who would play them, play this character in the movie, and if you have an idea of the style or genre of the film, I think that would be an interesting thing to do. Uh, and we'll just go through and and see them. I'm quite excited about yours, so I'll be happy to see what you're going to do. Well, why don't you lead off with your first one, mate?
1: Well, I'm not opening with the one that the the one that you're very excited for. No, no, that s- one, save I'll the best for with, last. I'll open with Sam Cook. So Sam Cook is one of my favourite. Um, Musical artists. He's probably the fate, the best soul singer of all time. He's probably the best singer of all time. One of the greatest voices Um, and was uh, a singer, a soul singer back in the 50s. He started out as a gospel singer. And then to get his big break, he started just singing kind of sweet soul romantic songs. Yeah. Um, And he was the, probably the biggest black voice in America. He was friends with Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown and sort of Malcolm X, although yeah. they had quite a fr- um, fric- fractured relationship, I should say. Yeah. As kind of depicted on my one night in Miami, um, and he, the Malcolm X was well, according to one night in Miami, they were pre- Malcolm X wanted them to use his voice to sing about the struggles, for um, that black people have or had in America in the sixties, but they still have now. But um, he was, and he was
0: quite powerful in the music industry, wasn't he? Had actually risen to the point where he had his own record company. He
1: had, a, he had his own record label and um had up and coming black artists writing songs like Bobby Womack. For the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. and making loads of money and empowering these kind of people, so he was yeah. he was on the boil. He just towards the end of his life, sadly, he passed away in nineteen sixty four. Um, was um shot at. He was shot at a motel after um a kind of a disturbance. He yeah. basically take a, a woman had you know he invited a woman back to his motel room, and. She she left the room ran uh, ran out and Sam Cook ran out after with you know barely any clothes on, um and the motel owner shot him in the chest killed him and there's a lot of dispute around yeah. this this death the woman that was with him had been famous for scamming men where she would invite them home get them all naked and then steal their wallet or their car keys and run out because the man was indisposed yeah um and it was a scam so she'd done that before. And uh, Sam Cook ran out, and the motel owner um shot him, uh, because she felt like she was threatened for her life, scared for the other woman's life. So, I am of the opinion that this woman was a scammer, and Sam Cook has just paid the price for it. Um,
0: there were other stories about his about his death as well, though, weren't there? Well,
1: there's other stories that, that because he had such a powerful voice, and just at the end of his career, he started so he released a change is going to come, and it's about um, or a change is going to come, sorry, and it's about you know the civil rights movement in america and how they want um the black people want change they want the same rights as that white people have and it was so powerful it's a still a really powerful song and allegedly he was killed by the government the same way that mlk and malcolm x were so
0: yeah um yeah because i mean i've i'm i'm interested in sam cook myself i remember i was reading around them for one night in miami which we did on the podcast before sam cook's been portrayed on film twice but not in his own biopic he was one of an ensemble in one night in miami and he was a supporting character in the buddy holly story and like you say he's such a prominent figure he does deserve his own movie um so i read up on some of it at the time is that the 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 woman who shot him, he didn't die straight away and sort of started walking towards her, or her version of the story is that she started walking towards him and she had to hit him with like a blunt object and then he went down and then he died. Um, And then the singer Etta James, um, she viewed Cook's body before his funeral and questioned the accuracy of that official version of events. She wrote uh, that the injuries she observed were well beyond the official account of Cook having been sort of hit once by that woman um In those circumstances, she wrote that Cook was so badly beaten that his head was nearly separated from his shoulders. His hands were broken and crushed, and his nose mangled. Phil,
1: um, s- the story of was yeah. shot and hit in the head. Yeah,
0: yeah. And some have speculated that Cook's manager, Alan Klein, had a role in his death because um clone Klein, Klein owned all rights to Cook's recordings, but there's been no evidence of a criminal conspiracy. as As you say, um Malcolm X was killed for being too outspoken uh Martin Luther King was killed for being too outspoken and Sam Cooke had started to become outspoken on civil rights and ended up dead as well so you can it's understandable that given that those events and some of the the things that have been said about it that there were a few different theories about his death right yeah would that be would that be the main what would be the main focus of, of sam cook's life that would, would, would it be the circumstances around his death would it be the main thing or would that just be part of it for you what what sort of but what sort of, sort of storyline of sam cook's would you envisage for him
1: um i'd like Leslie Odom jr to have another crack at it but i'd like it to kind of i don't know if it would work because led Leslie Odom jr is of a certain age but i'd like it to start of him just leaving um the church he was singing at to go and make it big in um You know the music industry. I'd like it to start there, and then just follow his career and the people he met and the Mm -hmm. relationships he formed along the way up until the point of his death. Really, Um, yeah. I think that would be a very interesting film to watch. Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah. If they're going to do that, they need to do it soon because Leslie Odom Jr. is now uh, forty. I mean, he's one of those people who looks very good on it.
1: Yeah, he's he's not. He doesn't. But you know, to get him to play like an eighteen-year-old leaving, you know. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, they sometimes, you know, are they going to try and de-age him or, I don't know. Fuck
1: no. No, yeah. that's not allowed.
0: Yeah, they'll just see if he can do it. I mean, i tell you what was interesting. I was talking to my wife about this the other, the other day. We were talking about um, uh, people, when they die young and years later they're still really young and it's, it's kind of weird and mind-blowing and it put me in mind of The Five Bloods. And when they did The Five Bloods, do you remember, I don't know what you thought when I watched it, but it was really interesting that the, the survivors of that military unit are all in their 60s and 70s in the film. And when they do the flashbacks, they just use the same actors. Yeah, And the, it works really well because it's like, well, they're remembering it and they see themselves as they are now. But Chadwick Boseman, he's playing a character who died at the time and he hasn't aged. So in their mind, he's still the young man and they're the old men. So maybe they'll just do something like that. they say, look, let's all just suspend our disbelief. It's still Leslie Odom and he's going to play a young guy. Deal with it. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, maybe give him like a certain haircut, or you know, make his, a hero. Yeah, yeah. You know, give him loads of like makeup that day, so he looks. Yeah,
0: really I mean, Denzel nice. Washington played quite a young version of Malcolm X at the start of that movie. Do you know what I mean? And it's I fine. Was in his forties, nearly. Just about, yeah, and um, years. yeah, and so, what sort of style of movie is this? I mean, you sound like you're describing this as like a, a like a, a pretty like a, a music biopic that covers his life. Is is that well, is, what, what yeah, sort of the, style of movie is this?
1: The problem I have with it is that these 10 types of films tend to not get the music right, so the Hendrix film was um, god-awful because... They They weren't allowed to use his music. There was a
0: Bowie film with the same problem.
1: And there's a Billy Joel biopic coming up and it's not been allowed to use his music. So I would only do this film if they were allowed to use his music. So potentially have Regina King direct it again because she managed to get the music for one night in my area, Yeah, yeah. And just do that because... um,
0: yeah, she did yeah, such so a good job of of of, of creating Sam Cooke's character. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see that. So, <laughs> um, look, I tell you what, I would go and watch that film. I mean, for me, right? Um, what do I think about music biopics? I like them. Like, for example, I thought Walk the Line was really, really good. But the more it was its own thing, the more I liked it. And the more it was just a music biopic, the more I went, no, that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But that whole kind of, when they start out, they're just trying to make it. And they have some, you know, whatever's going on in their early lives. It's very formative. Yep. Tick that box. Um, then they have their first breakthrough. Yep. And then they develop. They get bigger. How does that change them? How does it change their relationship? Do you know what I mean? It's not... It's not the fault of the movie, if it does a good job of that, that it seems familiar. The problem is, is that so many of those biopics have quite similar story beats. So, and I'll tell you what was, even though I'm not a big, that huge fan of the music, what I thought worked quite well as a as a music biopic recently was Rocketman, because it kind of put its own structure around the music and it let the music determine the mood of each scene that it was doing. And I, yeah. I I'm not saying they should do it like that, but I think... I, I would like... I think music biopics work well when they find a different way to tell the story. Either it's the Tina Turner story and it's so tumultuous that it can just tell it, right? And the music's part of it as well. You know, it's her life with Ike was just so tough. But I think with something like um, this with Sam Cooke. They can let the music make the move. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, they can almost kind of... You could use the songs for the flashback structure. You can, you know, I don't know much about history. Could could be the song that plays and reminds him of his school days. Do you know what I mean? You can kind of do it in that way because the music is usually what sells this movie and the emotions in that music. You know that what what you're feeling, I think, is very a very good way to tell the story. So that it's not just, I mean, the, even though it did really well at the you know the box office and won some awards, I think Bohemian Rhapsody is a classic example of that being a bit stale because just went here we go, blah blah blah. And it's Look like, how
1: good this performance is, but not actually.
0: Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think Regina, Regina King would be a safe pair of hands for it. I mean, I would watch that movie. I would definitely watch that movie. Is there anything else about Sam Cooke that you would want to see go in the film? I mean, he's you know, he had some memories. I mean, would you, would you do that? Would you touch on what happened in that night Just in Miami? How he
1: wrote his songs. Like he's got, no, I wouldn't do the one night in Miami thing. I'd have his relationships with Muhammad Ali and all those people. Mm-hmm. Um, there but I, I wouldn't do that but i like the, uh, the the song you wrote chain gang yeah a chain gang obviously a, a group of uh like prisoners just kind of working on like the roads or just mm-hmm. working in the fields he met a group of them while like, he was just driving somewhere mm-hmm. in america and he gave him like a pack of cigarettes and like something to drink and just you know asked them their stories and then wrote a song about them that's really cool that's what the type of thing you should be like talking about you mm-hmm. know um yeah i could like, i could
0: see that being quite quite fun you could do actually, that where he meets the guys and the you can almost have a bit in the scene where whatever they're singing or whatever what are they whatever they're doing to keep their spirits up in the chain gang morphs in the movie into sam cook's song
1: well yeah and you there's the story of sam cook is told by his music so he wrote the song you know you send me mm-hmm. um and that was about um you know just the woman that he loves um and he wrote it <laughs> but it wasn't allowed to be released for about a year just to like write so he'd written it recording it was waiting for it to be released um wasn't allowed to um release it so he would go up to women in bars and say darling i've just thought of a song about you on the spot so i'm gonna sing it to you and he'd sing the song to them and like oh well that's so romantic he'd take them home have his way with them. <laughs> he was he was
0: a bit of a he was a bit wayward in his and, sort of monogamy, wasn't he? But
1: then the song would come out a year later and about a 100 women across America probably at the same time went,
0: "Oh, he's he playing our song. That song for me." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think he's and he's an interesting character I think in some of his some of his uh dealings in life. That's that's you yeah, know, that's interesting. I I would definitely watch that movie. So, um you you good on Sam Cooke? Shall I shall I throw yeah, one yeah. out? So we're sort of in music biopic territory here as well, Um, but my first suggestion is uh, Josephine Baker.
1: Now enlighten us all.
0: So first of all, Josephine Baker has had a TV movie made about her in the 90s, but some of the most interesting stuff she did has only been declassified by sort of military intelligence since then which just goes to show an interesting life she had. So there is more story to tell that they couldn't tell back then. And TV movies don't count anyway. Josephine Baker was a, a black woman, uh, maybe well, African American. I, I couldn't be one hundred percent on the um, you know exactly how mixed race or or, or or not she was, but she was Josephine Baker. She was born in nineteen oh six. She was a dancer, singer, and actress, and she. Um, found herself, unfortunately, because of the times, unable to really make any headway in her career in America. So in the 20s, she went to France, where she became an instant sensation. She performed at the Folie Bergère in Paris, which is a really famous club. She basically performed topless, or, or only wearing like a beaded necklace and a short skirt made out, out of artificial bananas. And she became absolutely iconic. She was a symbol of both the Jazz Age and the Roaring Twenties. She was... Um, I think she was painted by Picasso. She was written about by Ernest Hemingway. She was this huge figure in America. Sorry, in, in in France. Having made a bit a big name for herself in uh 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 France, she tried to go back to America to kind of see if she could make her name there. But she, unfortunately all the attitudes and the racism and the dismissing of her were still there. So she said, Fuck it, I'm gonna make my name in France. So she just basically became this huge, huge star in in France and she she starred in films, she was Uh, She renounced her US citizenship, became a French national, and married a French industrialist in 1937. And she had children and raised them in France. Now, as World War II approached, here's where things get really interesting. She uh, uh, basically volunteers to help with the French war effort against the Germans. Before war actually breaks out, she uses her celebrity to gather intelligence on the Germans on behalf of the French government by going to parties at the French embassy and meeting all the, the visiting German people. Uh, and she's so engaging and she's uh, no one thinks that, she, you know, Josephine Baker's a spy. Of course she's not. She's a, like one of the most prominent figures. And she says, so she's hiding in plain sight. And she would chat away to all these German diplomats and people and gather information and give it to the French government to try and help them. Now, one step more than that, um, once war breaks out, she joins the French resistance. She takes part in French counterintelligence. She uh, she goes to her chateau that she lives in, in, in the Dordogne that she owns and she housed people who were taking part in the Free French effort. She helped people escape to Charles de Gaulle's Free French Army in France. She had an excuse to move around Europe, visiting neutral nations and entertaining the troops. So she traveled to Portugal and South America. She carried information. She had um, you know, secret messages written in Visible ink that she hid in her underwear and on her sheet music. Um, she would go to parties at embassies and ministries. And she would gather information, pass information, and... Um, She had, sadly, had a a miscarriage while all of this was happening, um, and she got very sick. She got, like, uh, blood poisoning, but she carried on, you know, after she recovered, she, um, even though she was having health problems, she went and entertained British, French, and American soldiers in North Africa, and all that time, she was an intelligence agent for the French against the Nazis. Um, And this is spectacular. She's such a bold, fearless character, and she was... After the war, she was already recognized as a wartime hero. She was, um, massive in France. So she used that new gravitas to almost be like the French, um, Nina Simone. She, you know, she didn't just do like entertaining shows. She would do more serious music. Uh, they absolutely loved her in France. Uh, she then got to go back to America where she was a big name and sold out tours, refused to play to segregated audiences. So, you know, she became a civil rights figure for the American. She finally got the recognition deserved in America, um, her career sort of winds down after that. You know, she got into some money trouble, um, but Princess Grace of Monaco was such a fan that she bought her a flat in Monaco, so she had to sell her chateau. You can now go and visit Josephine Baker's chateau in France and find out all about her. Um, she was, when she died, this is a huge thing, she is the first black woman, I think the only black woman, maybe, maybe the first one, to be um, to have a, a, a tribute at the Pantheon in Paris where all the French heroes are, um, are recognised. So she is this enormous... Um, hero in france and fought the war effort but i just think that's perfect to feel like a biopic because it's like you've got your music but you've also got a war movie you've got a spy movie do you know what i mean you've got an opportunity for an actress to inhabit this role and play josephine baker and bring out the jazz age and the roaring 20s which is one of the most exciting times to film right um and then you've got a, a black woman a black jazz singer fucking pouncing around europe fighting the nazis without them even knowing it it's amazing she she led this incredibly interesting life she adopted about 8 kids she had troubled relationships with some of them but so she's she's a character there's interesting stuff about her to to find out about her personal life she was divorced about 3 times she adopted about 8 kids a multiracial family she's just Honestly, I'm amazed that they haven't done it again. They did it once, and it's a, a good little TV movie. It was well-regarded at the time, but this deserves the full, big biopic treatment, and it absolutely needs to be done.
1: Totally, mate. I don't have anything to say. That's a really, I had no idea who she was. I'd never heard of her. And and, that's what makes a good biopic, when you've not heard of the person.
0: And, and it's funny what you would say, is that, that you would say Regina King is your your nominee to do the Sam Cook movie, because I would want Regina King to direct this movie. I mean regina,
1: all, all that regina king has to do every single bio. <laughs> yeah
0: i mean because the music stuff and the jazz age stuff and the big band stuff you could definitely see scorsese directing it all the big music stuff but i think this this i i think uh these days i think it it would be a, a probably a black woman is the perfect person to write this Now I'd just like to see Regina King do everything she did in One Night in Miami but on a bigger scale because I thought she got One Night in Miami really right I mean that's just a play you know, in like in like one set or two sets originally and she opens it out she does some great concert footage with, with Sam Cooke I'd love to see her have a crack at the Josephine Baker stuff um and I think it could. I think the main focus should be on a wartime adventures, but you could have some flashbacks, and flash forwards to the other things that she did. I mean, the other thing about these biopics is that you've got to find the bit of the story that fits into two hours, in my humble opinion. Um, but maybe try and include. She did a speech at the March on Washington with them at Martin Luther King in the sixties. I think it would be find a way to fit that in, and otherwise focus on that exciting wartime stuff and her kind of jazz age stuff. And I thought maybe Zendaya could play her.
1: Interesting.
0: Um, but yeah, that's that's my call for Joseph and Baker. But I just think, God, that, that's a fucking movie already. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't, you know. It's
1: written itself, has not it? Yeah, yeah.
0: It's got everything.
1: Okay. Should I go on to my next one? Yeah, you,
0: you do your next one now.
1: Right. So my next one is, you ready? Mad Jack Churchill.
0: Yeah. Now, this is the one I almost did as well. And I'm glad I didn't. So you can have a free run at it. Um, so- but he's quite a character. I'm looking forward to this.
1: Mad Jack Churchill. Let's just... I'm, I want to get everything right about this man because I don't want to do him a disservice. Yep. Um He was an officer during the war. Yep. During the Second World War, sorry. Um, no relation to the, the
0: famous Churchills, like Winston well, Churchill. That, them.
1: that comes into play here. So Yes,
0: yes, it does. Um, but in reality, he wasn't part of their family, yeah, but was, it's something that...
1: He was... Um, he was born in... A, Colombo, Ceylon, which is
0: Sri Lanka yep. um, today. Um, so he was like a an empire, a colonial colonial so brat.
1: He studied he, he relatively privileged life, um, and then studied at uh, the military college at Sandhurst. Yeah, served in Burma, then left the army in 1936, and um, to become a newspaper editor and a male model. <laughs> um, uh, he appeared in the film. Uh, the thief of baghdad um using his talents of archery and the um the bagpipe mm-hmm. um appeared in a film Yankee oxford he took part in the Aldershot military piping tattoo in 1938 and took second place and represented great britain at um, the world archery championships and also and i hear all the listeners saying james why are you telling me this well here we go in the second world war he resumed his basically his commission his position um, after Germany invaded Poland he was sent to France and the British expeditionary force um, and some of his men were ambushed by a German patrol um, near Riesburg, and Churchill gave the signal to attack by raising his broadsword <laughs> which Do I, don't, believe- I don't
0: I don't believe a broadsword was standard issue for the for the British British army in World War two no II, they it?
1: they'd kind of stopped using them about 500 years
0: 250 <laughs> years ago yeah uh,
1: um, I love this guy. He, um, there's, a, he allegedly, I reckon this is true. He is the last recorded kill with a longbow.
0: Yeah. Because I, I by that point, it case. was
1: so like the weapon that had been so important for 10,000 years was now redundant. He's the last kill with it.
0: Um, not to interrupt your flow I just want to ask a really quick question while it occurs to me has Mad Jack Churchill ever been added as a character feature or add-on that you can play in a Call of Duty or, or other kind of oh, online world could you wolf? imagine if you could buy a Mad Jack Churchill character even for Fortnite or something but especially for someone like Call of Duty wouldn't that be amazing Mad Jack Churchill yeah
1: he, um, I, I would love that um, <laughs> Activision should throw all of their money at that so He was, the reason he would still use his bow and arrow and his broadsword, he believed that any officer who goes into action without his sword is improperly dressed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, he would, um, he got deployed in Norway. um, As the ramps fell down on the first landing craft, he leapt forward um, playing the bagpipes, playing March of the Cameron Men before throwing a grenade and charging into battle. (laughs) He received the military cross and bar. He then decided he was going to uh, Italy. He was deployed in Italy, landed in Catania with his Scottish broadsword, longbow and arrows under his neck and his bagpipes under his arm. And he used these at the landings in Salerno. Um, he was ordered to capture a German tow- a German observation post outside the town of Molina, uh, which would have, um, which was controlling a pass leading down to the Salerno beach. So it basically just kind of cleared up the, the route for the, the landing parties he captured infiltrated the town captured the post and took 42 prisoners um including a mortar squad i think it was just him and himself
0: mm-hmm.
1: him and a corporal yeah captured 42 soldiers um <laughs> someone described him as a, described him as an image from the napoleonic wars <laughs> um he, he then after taking the town walked back to the town to retrieve a sword which he'd lost to hand to hand combat on his way there, he encountered a disoriented American patrol, mistakenly walking towards enemy lines. Um, the NCO, the American NCO in command of the patrol, refused to turn around. Churchill told him that he was going his own way, and he wouldn't come back for a bloody third time. He, was, he wasn't going to come back and save them. Mm-hmm. So he, he was finished in Italy. He then went to Yugoslavia to support um, Josip Broz Tito's uh, partisans. Yeah. Um, he he basically was um, he was just doing war shit um he then got captured um he was him and his uh, like patrol or his um squad um were they'd been given an objective but it was quite a bloody battle only himself and six other managed to reach the objective a mortar shell killed everyone apart from Churchill who just decided to play Will you know come back again on his bag- bagpipes as the Germans advanced he was knocked unconscious by grenades knocked unconscious not killed um <laughs> he was captured and because he was related to winston oh well because his name churchill the Germans believed he was related to Winston Churchill and thought he um, would be a really valuable thought prisoner, he was right? he wasn't and they took him as a prisoner um he was then taken to um Sachsenhausen concentration camp um which he escaped with three RAF officers um they were then captured again at the German coastal city of Rostock. They were taken to another concentration camp, Tyrol, guarded by SS troops. Uh, a group of prisoners um, told the German army, which is different to the SS, they thought they were going to be executed. And the German army um, basically protected the... Pri- Allegedly, we don't know how true this is because it gives the Germans humanity and the Germans didn't really have a lot of humanity that they... Um, but the SS guards were going to kill captain jack churchill allegedly but the german army stepped in and said no you're not going to do that because they outnumbered them um yeah after that the prisoners were released by the germans and churchill jack churchill decided to walk 93 miles um and encountered an american armored unit in italy so by this point the war in europe has ended and um Churchill thought, fuck this, I'm, I still want a bit of war, so he decided to go to Burma, where there were some large land battles against the Japanese being fought. Mm-hmm. By the time he'd reached India, Hiroshima and Nagasaki had been bombed and the war had ended. Churchill was said to be unhappy with the sudden end of the war, saying, if it wasn't for those damn yanks, we could have kept the war
0: going another ten years. <laughs> <laughs> he's, like, he's like that guy that the listener suggested with the complicated Belgian name. He's, he's enjoyed the war a little bit more than normal people would.
1: So, after the war was done, um, he decided to qualify as a parachutist and transferred to the C4th Highlanders. He was then posted to Mandatory Palestine um, as executive officer of the 1st Battalion, the Highland Light Infantry. In the spring of 1948, as what tends to happen in Palestine, uh, there was a conflict. And he was um, basically charged with. Um, not really getting involved. He was told to not get involved and just kind of keep an eye on things of what was going on.
0: He doesn't sound like the ideal candidate for that job.
1: there was a Jewish hospital, uh, the Hadassah Hospital on the Hebrew University campus on Mount Scopus, Jerusalem. And he was told to not get involved, but he got involved anyway and um, managed to evacuate 700 Jewish doctors, students and patients, saving their lives from the attack from um arab forces in palestine that was, um, the, was that was categ- the
0: first arab israeli war wasn't it
1: I think. and he was categorically told by the british government not to get involved and he got involved anyway um he then further appeared in the film ivanhoe um by metro goldwyn Mayer, and just to appear as an archer and then later served as an instructor at the land air warfare school in australia where there he became a keen surfer <laughs> um, and then he came back to Britain where he was the first man to ride the river sevens five foot uh tidal board, designed his own surfboard um I didn't know tired... about the surfing that's really yep, thrown me off he yep he retired in nineteen fifty nine where his according to this article his eccentricity continued. He startled train guards and passengers by throwing his briefcase out of the train window each day on the ride home. He later explained that he was tossing his case into his own back garden so he would not have to carry it from the train <laughs> oh, station. I have
0: heard that story. That's amazing. Yeah, and yeah then I've heard that.
1: after that, he just liked sailing ships on the Thames and playing with radio-controlled model warships. He died in 1996 at 89 years old, and in 2014, the Royal Norwegian Explorers Club published a book that featured Churchill, naming him as one of the finest explorers and adventurers of all
0: time. It, I mean, it's amazing. It's an amazing life. It, it's, it staggers me that it's not been done already as a movie. I mean, stuff like this is is it's it's great fodder for films. You remember, we talked about A Bridge Too Far, the war movie. We were talking about films we watched at school. And there's a character in that who always carried an umbrella, and he he turned out to have this really interesting life either side of the war as well. I love characters like that. Do you would you see this as a, a movie, or do you think this actually worked better as like a Netflix series or something? Because he did, he packed so much into his life.
1: He did pack so much into his life, but I feel like I feel like it'd be harder to drag out the kind of comedy aspect than the the kind of eccentricity of the guy for like six or eight episodes. Um, you'd, rather,
0: you'd rather just kind of maybe not cover it. It'd be sound like a, almost like a, you'd need like some narration where you say you can't, you can't show everything you did, but you can mention other stuff that you did or have little brief scenes covering it sort of thing.
1: Yeah. I don't know how I would do it. It might even work better as just like a short film. I know that sounds mental, but I, it's one of those ones where I don't actually think there's a lot to flesh out. Mm-hmm. All the good stuff happens during the war. Mm-hmm. So maybe it would just work as like a quick fifteen-minute film. I know that sounds weird because he packs so much in, but yeah, I, I wouldn't want it to be a film where it was just relying on those like story beats. You know, like the yeah, the the, usual the funny ones. moments. Um. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and maybe that's why it's not been made. Um.
0: Yeah. Do you? I mean, obviously, if the focus is on the war, it could be a war movie with a difference, with a, like an interesting tone. Just the, I mean, it's like you don't always do, you know, it's it's an interesting aspect of like who's suited to war. Do you know what I mean? Because obviously, we all, all you, know, you know, some of the more serious war movies are often about like this is an ordinary ordinary person. Look what war does to them, and then there's like a very unique and special breed of very strange people who flourish during war, and he's one of those, isn't he? Um, so. Uh, can maybe just say look we're going to make this a war movie but the tone of it is going to be all about looking at what imagine what kind of crazy bastard would enjoy this shit you know did you give did you have any thoughts on who would direct a film like this oh
1: no i didn't even cast the person who plays a character like this metal street (laughs) Um, she's got the range it would have to be someone who's a bit bonkers
0: the thing is, I bet you can. I bet you can look up photographs of what Mad Jack Churchill looked like and say, "Okay, let's find an actor who looks like him." But he sounds. That, like, no. It sounds like the sort of person. He doesn't need to look like him. He doesn't need to physically no, resemble no, no. him because his is, you know, it's like oh, let, don't don't try too hard to find a recording and work out what he sounded like. Tell the story. The you know work out who the character is from his from his exploits and find an actor who can do that. Right. I
1: would go with David Tennant.
0: That's interesting. That's interesting because he's not—he's not the sort of person you'd normally associate. Because he's—he's quite—he's quite thin, isn't he? He's quite like—he's quite a lean guy.
1: Jack Churchill wasn't necessarily a big, bulky guy. No, I like that. I like that.
0: Was he? Was he? Was he, was he a Scottish guy? But was one of those people? No, who's... he
1: was born in Sri Lanka. He will have definitely had a proper posh accent. He was a he was practically in he was practically nobility. No, David
0: Tennant can do that accent. That's no bother.
1: But I think just the whole kind of it's almost like swashbuckling. It gives me very Doctor Who vibes. Just the fact that he's dotting across the planet, just kind of getting involved in all the shit he didn't need to be getting involved yeah, yeah. in. Yeah, like
0: that would. And and I think casting someone who you don't normally see as an action hero would actually work really well. I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'd like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I could see that. I think that this is one of those movies where the kind of story stands on its own. If you've, It doesn't matter as much who directs this, do you know what I mean? It just needs to be someone good, because the, the story kind of defines the style already, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I I would go with that director-wise. Oh, it doesn't really matter, as long yeah. as you get the right person to play the lead. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I think so, someone, someone British, or at least someone who might not, even though they're not British, they kind of get the kind of, there's a there's a there's a, there's a, Taika there's a British working in ta- ta- yeah yeah why not yeah I think that's perfect that's really good that kind of um, the the he would get it he would get it you're absolutely right there you go we're, we've we've already Jar- we've already given Churchill we've already given Regina King two jobs and now we've got one for Taika Waititi,
1: well he's probably gonna have to direct my last one isn't he <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah we'll come to that okay now we're on my second one aren't we. Yes, So the second one is, I'm probably not pronouncing this right, is a guy called Oleg Gordievsky. Now, Oleg uh, Gordievsky is still alive. He's born in 1938, so he's he's in his 80s now. He's a former colonel in the KGB who who became a KGB sort of uh, bureau chief in London. So he's a spy for the Russians. And then he became a double agent providing information to the British Secret Intelligence Services from 1974 to 1985. After being recalled to Moscow under suspicion, he escaped um, with a daring plan called Operation Pimlico. The Soviet Union subsequently sentenced him to death in absentia. Um, and while his career as a, a double agent was over, he continues to, even to this day, to have to keep his head down and, you know, live, you know, keep his address private and avoid any um uh, a contact that could uh, get him in trouble because the Russians are still not finished with him. They'd like to take revenge on him for what he did. Um, he A lot of this is kind of, you know, pretty standard Cold War stuff. He joined the Foreign Service, was posted to East Berlin. He, you know, he said, oh, you know, you, you could best serve the Soviet Union in intelligence. So he joins the KGB. He's posted to the Soviet embassy in the 60s and became so outraged by the USSR's cruel crushing of the Prague Spring reform movement in Czechoslovakia in 1968, he began sending covert signals to Danish and British intelligence agents, uh, saying he would be willing to cooperate with them. In 1974, he agreed to pass secrets to MI6, uh, a step he viewed as nothing less than undermining the Soviet system. So he wanted to bring he wanted to bring them down. He become discussed with them. Um, he was recalled to Moscow. Um, uh, because he divorced his wife and married a woman he'd been having as an affair with, and the KGB frowned on affairs and divorces as immoral. So at this point, they've not picked up on him as a spy, but obviously he must have shot a shit himself when he got. There. Oh, we want, we're taking, we're recalling you to Moscow. Was, oh, are they on to me? But they weren't on to him. It's just they did disapproved of of um, of divorce and sort of brought him back and said, do this. He learned to speak English and lobbied heavily for a position that opened up in London, so that he could work in uh, in London as like the KGB agent there. So he managed to convince him that he still wanted to serve his country. And they sent him to London in June 1982. He advanced in rank there. And with the aid of secret assistance and, and tactics by MI6, um, MI6 gave him abundant information that was actually not much use. It was non-damaging. But because he was coming back with verifiable intelligence, God, you've done really well here. You're, you're capturing, you're gathering information on, on the British. This is brilliant. Keep it up. And actually, the MI6 were deliberately giving him information that they had no use for. And while he was doing that, he was handing all sorts of information out to um, uh, uh to the um, uh, to the West that was actually helping us win the Cold War. Um, what the Mi6 also did was they would target and banish all of Gordievsky's direct superiors in London, so his boss and his boss boss and else would be say, "You're a spy. We're sending you home." Right? And it's a controversial thing to do, but the reason they did this is that well, basically, what happened was Gordievsky would basically. Rise in rank because his superior had just been um, had just been sent home so by the end of it he's running the kgb in london while he's working for the british so this is a huge so many of the spy stories of the cold war are about communist spies uh, having you know infiltrated the west and this is one of the few ones where the the, the the west has actually got him back he's he's promote he just after being promoted to kgb chief he gets recalled to moscow um and this time it's because they're onto him. A CIA officer called Aldrich James is suspected of um, informing on him because he was actually a double agent for the Russians. He was drugged and interrogated, taken back to KGB, kept under increasing surveillance, suspected of being a double agent, but they didn't quite have anything to pin on him. Um, and then they already had an operational plan for him. So they he goes on this daring escape. He's uh, He gets the signal. He... He goes for a jog, gets away from his KGB tails, boards a a train to the Finnish border, um, lies down in the boot of a a, a car, smuggled across the border and then flown back. He's sentenced to death in absentia. There's been attempts on his life ever since. Um, He was uh, was poisoned um, uh, and had to be taken to and spent 36 hours unconscious. This is in 2007. So the Cold War's over and the Russians still want to kill him. Um, He is... uh, he is still living in in you know quietly in the UK and has to be very careful where he goes. But essentially, he changed the course of the Cold War. And it's just a proper spy story. It's just it's a daring, proper, good old-fashioned Cold War story. So he in himself, I don't think, is like the world's most interesting character. But he's a, I think he's a great spy character for all the things that he did. I don't know if you had any awareness of this guy.
1: No, I didn't. Um, very brave man. That would be a very tense film, I think. If I was to do that film, I get the people that made Chernobyl Mm -hmm. and get them to make this, whether it's a film, whether it's a uh, series, sorry, get them to make it. Yeah, I mean... the, the, The palpable tension of Chernobyl especially when the KGB started getting involved, I think was excellent. It was one of my favourite bits of that show. Yeah, I would get, I think it was Johan Rink who was mm-hmm. involved in that. Get them to make this.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously I didn't think too long about directors from TV. And if I'm honest, I didn't really know who directed the, the Chernobyl stuff. So I didn't come up with that, but that's a, that's a great shout. I went with Kenneth Branagh um, because he's very good at period detail. And although he's done a few thrillers, including spy stuff, he's not done one of these and I'd like to see him have a go. And I thought he could uh, he could do a good job, but that's a good shout for yeah. director. And I thought Christian Bale um, would be my guy to play him because this guy's a bit of a blank canvas. I don't think it's that important to look exactly like him, but he does. If you look at photos of Gordievsky through the years, he changes a lot. He's got a, a goatee beard and kind of, sort of longer hair at one point, and then it goes grey and everything else. And I think Christian Bale would have he'd be good as the character. I think he'd. The guy is essentially a bit of a blank canvas himself, like a lot of spies are. So having a, an interesting character who kind of has a sort of like edge to him already, I think would be a good way to play the character. Although I wouldn't want to change who he was. And I think um, uh, Christian Bell likes sort of the whole kind of transformational stuff. There's also a film called Rescue Dawn that uh, um, uh, Christian Bell did, where he played a, a guy who escapes from, as a prisoner from Vietnam. And I think, he'd be, I think he'd be quite good in that sort of thing. So that's why Christian Bell was my guy. Yep. And I thought you could start with, if you were going to do the movie, I'd I suggest starting with him being poisoned in 2008 by Russian intelligence in a revenge attack, showing how even decades later they're still after him. Um, and a flashback to key moments um, in his life, including when he becomes a double agent. The, the, one of the key moments I actually forgot to mention, I will mention it now, is an incident called Able Archer, where he may have prevented World War Three, Because the, the West, America, Germany, uh, all, like all the NATO forces and Britain are um, go on this massive war exercise called Able Archer across Europe, um, and it's and it's a it's a war game. It's it's an exercise to just you know train the troops in, in what they would do in in, in cold war you know, escalation situations. But it was so realistic that the, the Russians thought that the, the the Allies were attacking them. The West was attacking them and was getting ready to launch its missiles. And Gorbachevsky is the one who got the word out to say, "No, it's an exercise. Don't shoot." So he's credited with literally saving the world because World War Three nearly happened. Um, so I think you could kind of use that kind of flashback structure to, to, to tell his key moments, and then you know I think then you've got a long career fits into a two-hour running time kind of thing. I just like a good Cold War thriller. That's why he—he yeah, yeah. he, the character is less interesting than the things he did. So I think this would be a really good Cold War spy thriller. Yeah, so agreement. So that's my second one. Now, so
1: are you want me to finish on my one, or do you want to do your one again, and we'll finish on my one? I don't mind.
0: Why don't we finish on a high with yours? Because okay. I think that last one is going to, deserves to be the deserves to be the finale of this podcast. I'll have a actually. think about who the fuck, please. And and a, and actually, to avoid stealing its thunder, I just wanted to quickly do. I had a couple of um, other suggestions um, that I was going to do. For example, if there was anything that maybe didn't sound that good, or if if we duplicated any, I had a couple of subs which I'll just quickly mention. I thought a biopic of Christopher Lee would be pretty good.
1: Hmm,
0: because he. You know, he had a war record. Um, It's believed that he was in Special Forces and, you know, couldn't talk about what he did. But I think it's been declassified now. We could talk about what he did. He was a commando with the Special Operations Executive and carried out assassinations who attached to the SAS from time to time. And it's just fun that he did stuff like, you know, doing vocals for a metal band when he was about 90 and stuff like that. I thought he's just an interesting character. And I thought Sasha Baron Cohen could play him because he looks a bit like him and you need someone tall and kind of lanky. He would need to thin out a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. We need to thin down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, There's also a guy called Grover Williams, who was a Formula One racing driver before World War II and then was in the French Resistance, um, r- r- riding around in his racing car, like escaping the Nazis. I think that'd be really exciting. There was a novel about his life. I thought James McAvoy would play him because he looks a bit like photos of the guy. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, Bessie Coleman was my other one. She was an early American civil aviator. She was the first African American and Native American, because she had Native American ancestry, woman to hold a pilot's license. Uh, and she became a stunt flyer. She used to do dangerous air shows and she was incredible. She used to do all these kind of, she was like one one a one pilot, red arrows. She would do all these acrobatic techniques. And she died in a plane crash quite young, but she was a pioneer in, in piloting and all the early. I quite like some of that early kind of aviation stuff that can sometimes be quite good to watch on film. So that was my, that, that, those were my kind of near misses, people I could could have chosen. I don't know if you had any others that you thought of other than those three, but...
1: My honourable mentions. um, Alcibiades. Do you know Alcibiades or Alcibiades? No, who's that? He was a prominent figure in ancient Greek politics around about the 360s. All right. He basically just cucked and fucked his way around Greece. He basically made cucks of the king of Sparta, the king of Persia. He basically got... He was a prominent figure in Greek politics, but ended up shagging everyone's wives. So was basically chased out of Greece. (laughs) <laughs> and he was a brilliant he was a brilliant tactician he was very smart he was involved in the m- military aspects of things and um he was um basically he he knew everything about the greeks so to save his life and go to the persians because would, they would have killed him on site he said i've got all this information about the greeks went um and started serving the persians shagged the persian king's wife group, <laughs> right <laughs> came back to greece and somehow he was famously gorgeous he was one of those gorgeous men you're like the kind of guy you'd leave your wife for like that kind of gorgeous
0: yeah, yeah. He, um but not leave he, your wife with
1: yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and um he he managed to flirt his way back into Greek politics and then just kind of um I can't remember how he died but he managed to completely um yeah he was he, he shithoused the entire um the entire you know ancient Greek and Persian world. Um, oh, he was assassinated. Ah, so there you go. You have you have your conclusion. You're assassinated by got a jealous to... husband, presumably. Um, I wonder how he got killed. a I'm Jealous sure husband
0: he... or a heartbroken ex-lover?
1: Um. So how did he die? His forces were defeated. He 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 held a lot of power. He was um a very powerful man. Um. How did he die? Just to be honourable mention there. Um he he was killed by a shower of arrows. He just let himself die basically. Oh that's interesting. I was he would have been one he of them. Went the, out with a bang. Um I had another one. Who was my other one? Um Who was it again? It was um Have you heard of um the <laughs> the <laughs> there's <was laughs> Do you remember like the LA riots? Yeah. Well, basically, obviously, the LA riots, a lot of people just started looting and robbing because mm-hmm. that's what protests tend to be nowadays. It's never about the thing you're protesting. And it's just an excuse to go and rob places. Yeah. A little tight-knit Korean community just went to their roofs and started using um, AK-47s and defending their uh, their homes from, uh, loot from looters. That would be a quite a quite interesting. Story. That would be quite good, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Directed by Boon Jong Ho with a <laughs> few members of the Squid Game, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would yeah. be a good film. Um, yeah, yeah
0: that would be good. Yeah, I can see that.
1: But no, no, Al- Alcibiades would be a good one. Anyway, do you want me to let you, you know, just nice on one? With? Yeah,
0: I'll do my last one and I will finish on yours because I think yours is going to be a, a fitting He's finale. The boy. So I may not be pronouncing this right because I'm not very good at how the different consonants are pronounced in Chinese, but this uh, this character is called uh, Zheng Yisao. Uh, she is a, w- a woman you. who lived... Thank you. She's a woman who lived in the 18th <laughs> to 19th century. She hasn't made uh, had a proper film made about her life, although a character based on her life appears in one of the Pirates of the Caribbean series, At World's End. Uh, and there was an Italian film called Singing Behind the Scenes which features people watching a stage performance about her but which is a fantastical stunning so no one's ever actually done a proper biopic of her. Uh, She was uh, the girlfriend of a pirate or she married a pirate and then after that pirate died she um, uh, got into a relationship with the with the other sort of leading pirates who controlled this fleet and eventually became the unofficial commander of the Guangdong Pirate Confederation and controlled 400 ships and 60,000 pirates. She was so powerful that they were essentially able to do battle with the Portuguese Empire, King China and the East India Company. They were a military force in the region. And this woman in the late late 18th, early 19th century was one of the leaders of this pirate fleet. Um, Awesome she uh she the guy she married was called zeng yi she married him she was she was originally called Shi yang and she sort of changed her name when she married this guy um and they fought against the the, the king china government or that's king with a q um they built a fleet that basically were enriching themselves as pirates but would actually get raid cities and towns and essentially make war on on opposite governments while, you know, to, to protect themselves. There was a period of infighting on pirates and Zheng Yi was able to unite the pirates through a confederation where they had all that stuff. They talk about the pirate code in, um, in Pirates of the Caribbean. That actually was a real thing. They had a code of conduct for pirates uh, and, you know, rules about who could like benefit from the booty and they looked after them and they were essentially um, their own Navy. And he fell overboard and died. She took over his ships because someone had to take over immediately and she formed an alliance with uh, Zhang Bao, the other leading pirate, and um, quite quickly formed a romantic relationship with him. There were rumours that she was having an affair with him already um, and by, you know, essentially marrying him she consolidated her power as the two of them united the fleets and became um, uh, this giant fleet of pirates that uh, then went and made war. They um, They broke through blockades of bays, that were intended to stop them raiding and, and basically became a power in the region. Eventually, the all the authorities in the area, all the navies in the area, stopped doing anything else they were doing and united to fight these pirates until they had an almost kind of, you know, unbeatable force to, to make them. So there's this giant kind of battle, naval battle. The Portuguese and the British, are, you know, have joined in. They're out. Finally, they're outgunned and outnumbered and their supply lines have been cut. They've got no chance and unusually and maybe this is hard to do in a movie but instead of going out in a blaze of glory like your your greek guy she surrendered and negotiated a settlement where not only is she not put in prison um she gets a settlement of a large amount of money and some uh uh some property and walks free she negotiates just because they're so sick of having to fight all the pirates that she walks free negotiates a surrender where they dismantle the pirate fleet and she goes to live quietly and runs a gambling house makes a lot of money a second fortune uh, and dies peacefully of old age um, having fought and survived giant naval battles against the great the world's great powers in 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 the in the Eastern world. Right. So, who's playing her then? Now, for me, I I've gone a little bit traditional here. I'm sure there are other sort of great Chinese actresses have to go, but I've gone for uh, Zhang Ziyi.
1: Yeah. Who did she not play that similar character in Pirates of the Caribbean? Or am I making that up?
0: I can't remember. Um, but obviously I know her from things like Hero and um, uh, Crouching Tiger. Crouch and Tiger and all of yeah. that. And she's about 40 now. So this is her playing a more mature sort of leadership character. I thought that would be a fun thing she, for her I to play. imagine she
1: still looks quite young.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. It'd be ironic that they have to kind of age up a 40-year-old to look like a real 40-year-old. But, they, you know, I haven't seen her in a while. I'm
1: just making sure.
0: Whether she was in the Pirates of the Caribbean at one Oh, Hand. no,
1: Mistress Ching. Yeah. No, that was a much older woman.
0: Yeah. I mean she wasn't that old when she finished being a, a a pirate, but she was known as Mistress Ching and lived to kind of a ripe old age. Because,
1: what's her name again, Zhang?
0: Zhang Yi Zhao. She was known as Mistress yeah. Ching as well.
1: No, no the actress. Sorry.
0: Oh, sorry, sorry.
1: Um, that you want to play her Zhang Zihi. Yeah. Your name? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was the first actress that came to my head. I think she'd be a very good choice for that.
0: Yeah. And um, I think you're looking at sort of a, a Chinese or East Asian uh, director. Ang Lee. I mean, so realistically, the only thing about this is that if you're if you're going to do a movie in China, I don't know what Ang Lee's status is because he's actually Taiwanese. So I was thinking, oh dear. Ang, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously, there's a couple of great Korean directors, but that might be politically unsuitable to to let a current Korean director do this, about, this famous um, Chinese story.
1: Um the director of Nomadland. She's obviously Chloe got, Zhao.
0: She's, yeah. She's got Chinese heritage. Yeah, she has. She's similar to Ang Lee. I think she's... I think she... Well, I'm not sure if she came from time. She's Chinese-American. She's got enough Chinese heritage. And obviously, I'd like to give her the benefit of the doubt over Eternals. And I think the reason Eternals didn't work that well is because Marvel's not really giving people, directors, the kind of um, opportunities to make a good movie that they used to. And I'd Chloe, like to see her given another chance.
1: Sorry, Chloe Zhao is... You know, she's not even, I don't think she's even assumed like American citizenship. She is born in Beijing, raised, went to,
0: um, went to boarding school in London and and then finished high school in Los Angeles. Sorry, I thought she, I thought she had 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 American citizenship now. Yeah, yeah, Chloe Zhao. Yeah, I think it'd be good to see her again because obviously Ang Lee has done this kind of thing before. So obviously part of me wants to see someone new have a crack at it. So I was thinking Chloe Zhao as well. So yeah. And I think it's just, it's a massive historical epic with the kind of, um, She's such a daring character, not only for kind of taking over, you know, and controlling the, um, um, controlling these pirate fleets, you know, you know, romancing her way to the top by kind of seducing marrying, can you know, you know, but earning the power, and and then just having the sheer guts to kind of say, right, we're going to negotiate in a settlement where I walk free from this. Think, How the fuck does she pull that off? <laughs> um, I just think that would be really cool, and I, I just, you know, see the flying arrows naval battle. I've, I'm not sure I've seen in these big Chinese. Historical epics, which I really enjoy, like a *Hero* and *Crouching Tiger* and *House Flying Daggers*. I've not seen, I'm sure, we've seen much in the way of naval battles, have we? So that would be the the, be cool. the Chinese that is... ships look really cool as well. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'd like to see that. So that, so so that was my last one. So we
1: finishing. If it couldn't be Chloe Zhao, maybe the guy who did *Eternals*, because he's an Asian American director. Um, his name, I thought it was Chloe Zhao did *Eternals*. Not *Eternal*, sorry, Shang Chi. Shang Chi. Other... Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah you could have a crack uh, at that. Destin yeah. Daniel Cretton. He, um, yeah, yeah. Just in case Chloe Joe wouldn't work out in these hypothetical scenarios. Yeah. yeah. Um Right you ready? Yep, this is the finale. I'm so excited right, about so this. So the Please final proceed. the final character I have to say that I'd like to see a real life character would be Ken Allen. Now, do you know who Ken
0: Allen is? I did not know who Ken Allen was until you messaged me yesterday and told me who it was. So pretend it's eighteen hours ago and I haven't I haven't learned who Ken Allen is yet.
1: He's an orangutan. (laughs) He's a primate. So, (laughs) he was a Bornean Bornean orangutan at the San Diego Zoo, born on February 13th, 1971. And he is one of the most popular animals in the history of the zoo. Probably is the most popular animal. He's one of the most popular animals ever. But he, from an early age when he was a little, what do you call a young primate?
0: I don't know, a baby ape, I don't know. What do you call a a
1: baby ape? Alexa, what do you call a baby ape? A young ape is called an infant. Oh, fuck off. Um, it's called an infant, apparently. When he was an infant, he was, he had a certain proclivity for, um, to just break out of his little cage that he was in. His little enclosure. And he loved it. He loved. He would break out, and then he would play with all his toys, and he loved it. He had so much fun playing with all the toys when all the like zookeepers went home. He, I think, he was rejected by his mother, so he had to be raised by the zookeepers. Mm-hmm. And he or he was probably maybe more likely due to deforestation, he was forced uh, uh, away from his mother. Yeah. Anyway, he would break out of his cage at night time when the zookeepers had gone playing play with all his toys. But he would, he once got discovered by the zookeepers in the morning, and they were like, "Oh fuck's sake! How did he get out of there?" So. Next time they put him back in his cage, built his cage back, and then um when they when they left he broke out of his cage and played with the hoys, but this time he knew not to get caught, so he went back in his cage with them coming home. Oh, put all the toys away and like put his cage back together and, you know, um hid all of his uh hid all of his like um tomb of foolery. So anyway, he grows up, and becomes a one of those big you know orangutans with the big kinda of plate-sized head. Yeah. Um and he uh, was put in an, an enclosure with another big male called Otis. Fuck Otis, by the way. Um, <laughs> and then four other um, females and two males that Otis gets very protective and they, they basically were just fighting and bickering all the time. Yeah. So, um, Ken Allen was forced to um, be put in his own enclosure by himself and this made him very unhappy, obviously. They're they're sociable animals. They, yeah. they enjoy the company of others. So... Um, he he got quite you know restless so he decided to break out again he break broke out of this enormous state of the art for the time enclosure while the zoo was open and had people around and this this orangutan just cuts about going to see all the other animals, like <laughs> looking, like like he'd paid for a fucking ticket. Just looking at all the other, oh, there's a zebra, oh, look, there's a Komodo dragon. Oh,
0: that's fantastic.
1: And he would, people were coming up to this orangutan, which is fucking mental, like, do not do this if this ever happens in real life. These guys are, these are like primates are strong, big beasts. Yeah, they won't, this guy,
0: they won't go out, of they're not aggressive in the way they go out no, and hurt you, but, but if you startled it, if you pissed them it, off,
1: yeah. yeah.
0: Um, But he was, he was just, he would just sit at the enclosure
1: and people were coming up to Ken Allen and getting photos with him. Oh, that's amazing just posing for selfies. <laughs> so, he, and then the zookeepers are like, oh, you bastard, there's a big orangutan uh, out of his enclosure. So they went up to him and they said, Ken, come on, Ken. And he went, yeah, sound. And just walked back to his enclosure. Didn't have to put him in like a thing around his neck. Didn't have to like <laughs> drag him or tranquilize him. He walked back to his enclosure. Oh. They went back in, locked it. So the th- zookeepers and the owner of the zoo and the manager of the zoo are thinking, Oh shit. We've had an animal get out and it's not like it's a, it's a little bird or like a like a little lemur. It's a oh you fucker that's a, that could have been that's how. that was a close one. This could end the zoo. What if we go bankrupt? Mm-hmm. It did the opposite. The next day the San Diego Zoo was haven there was millions of people queuing to get in <laughs> all to see ken allen it started it started a movement where people had t-shirts bumper stickers free, and a fan club that said free ken allen someone wrote a song called the ballad of ken allen which was written about him oh i love this so what did they do they used it as their own kind of advantage the zoo they made hundreds of money and they um ken allen became this huge this huge star. the san diego zoo was thriving but they thought we can't keep having him escape. Like this one-time thing was a funny thing. Like, oh, look at this gentle orangutan. Because he'd been raised by humans, I think it avoided being a nasty situation because he mm-hmm. was comfortable with them from a young age. Yeah. So what they did was they got two female orangutans to stay in his enclosure, thinking, right, maybe he'll be a bit more. maybe he'll, he'll chill out a little bit. He'll calm down, and he will have like his you know his two female orangutans to keep him happy and keep him yeah. company. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, what he did was. <laughs> do you know this bit, because I don't think it's on any of the articles right, if you want to watch it there's a guy on YouTube, Count Dankula, he's got shitty political opinions but he does these brilliant stories um, about um, all these characters and he, I, for this I watched the video that he did on Ken Allen and Ken Allen, um, basically <laughs> these two female orangutans were in the enclosure, he showed them how to break out of the enclosure too, how to use the sticks, how to use the stones, how to do whatever. So he, he was showing them how to break out. Luckily, they stopped it, and um, he, he managed to stop them from.
0: Um, the the bits but, that I that I read that I really enjoyed was how they started watching the enclosure to see how he did it to try and work out how he escaped. Figured it out. And the thing was, he was bright enough to know that they were looking at him, so he never tried to do it when anyone was watching. So, so yeah, what they
1: had to do was they couldn't wear the zookeeper outfits; they had to wear the like civilian clothes so that's dispute.
0: right they dressed up as civilians and even then he recognised them and, and, and knew it was them watching him so he didn't do it it's so, tremendous yeah Um
1: he escaped
0: and uh,
1: escaped again but remember Otis yeah both of these occasions, I think, at least on one of these occasions, he went over to his old enclosure where Otis was and just started throwing rocks and shite <laughs> and stuff at Otis because he fucking hated Otis. Bang, have that, you dick. An and it drove Otis fucking mental. He's like, how the fuck is that guy out there fucking antagonising? It was amazing. He had his arch nemesis. Um. Anyway, so he has his second escape. He got out. And the No, no. He had three escapes, the June 13th, July the 29th, and August the 13th. He was never violent to anyone or aggressive. um, Except Otis. Except Otis, (laughs) yeah, but fuck Otis. Um, (laughs) And what they had to do was they had to hire experienced rock climbers and basically Ken Allen proof an enclosure. Yeah, they went there
0: to... Anything that looked like a handhold had to be cut off or they, shaved they off to, or They
1: basically got the rock climbers to basically say, can you climb this wall? And they would sort of... He could climb that, he could climb that, etc. And basically proof the wall and get make sure that um, Ken Allen couldn't climb it. And it cost them £40,000 to eliminate the... Um,
0: <laughs> I think they made more than that in the t-shirts, though, didn't Oh, they?
1: definitely. Well, I don't know if the zoo made that, but the ticket sales, you know, yeah, more yeah. than justified it. And then... Um, didn't get to escape for you know this was in 1985 and then unfortunately at the age of 29 ken allen had developed prostate cancer and he was euthanized just to you know kind of put him out yeah. of his misery and not have him in any pain mm-hmm. on december the first 2000 um time magazine in 2011 listed ken allen's story as one of the top 11 zoo escapes it's one of the top escapes ever fuck escaping alcatraz the shawshank redemption oh brother where are the, the, Thou? this, this is, is the this best is class- escape this is a classic
0: escape movie
1: it's a heist. Like, not not even Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's Ken Allen. <laughs> you know?
0: That. I love this. I love Ken Allen. It's Ken great. Allen is, Oh,
1: didn't even say the best bit. His nickname was Harry Houdini.
0: <laughs> Harry Houdini. I liked Monkey Papillon, but Harry Houdini is more... more what um, is better. It's got a catch. It's better of a catch, isn't it? It's got a better ring to it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know who would... Di- Taika Waititi probably has to direct this again. I'm sorry, but... I mean, Andor- if you're going to do a heist movie, you could go Soderbergh. Steven Soderbergh likes a good, like... Uh, Written off- by Takeaway TTD. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was thinking... See, obviously, the, one of the, the, the ethical concerns of like animals and films is always the fact that even if you're pro-animal in your storytelling in the film, the things that you have to do to make an animal do what it's told in a film... It's are not often nice. against ethics. It's
1: like that kind of Tiger King vibe where they've got all the placid tigers yeah, yeah. at the end. No, what are they, no, what, what they are they doing to make them do that? And for example, CGI.
0: yeah, and obviously there was a, a famous orangutan character in, um, uh, in a, a couple of Clint Eastwood films which are probably so completely out of your sort of radar. One of them's called <laughs> Every Which Way But Loose and Any Which Way You Can, where Clint Eastwood's driving around. It's one of those aimless kind of good old boys set somewhere in the Midwest or South type movies where like Clint Eastwood's driving around in a pickup truck having random bar fights and not really sure what the story's about, but his best friend's in orangutan. Amazing. Uh, called Clyde. And like when he says right turn Clyde, he does a hand signal out the window and hits a motorcyclist Hell's Angel and knocks him out and stuff. And it's all cute and you love the orangutan, but they probably, someone is probably forcing that orangutan to do all that and that's not ethical. So it's definitely a CGI. It's a motion capture job for Andy Circus, isn't it? I mean, Andy Circus might direct because he's directing films now. But um, yeah. I definitely think you get Andy Circus to play Clyde in one of his special light suits.
1: Play, play it and potentially voice it. I think it'd be great to
0: have... This is the thing I was thinking. Do you, you could do this in a number of ways, how like realistic or naturalistic you want to make it. Do you have um the like voice actors like in the Planet of the Apes sort of new franchise where they're talking to each other? Obviously they can't talk to humans, but maybe they're talking to each other. Maybe and maybe Andy Circus is narrating his um his escapes in the style of Papillon or the Great Escape. Um there's so much you could do with this story.
1: It needs to have a perspective. Maybe it's not him necessarily I wouldn't have him speaking out loud, but his thoughts at least. Yeah. Like he escapes, and it's just him going, "Where the fuck is Otis?" And he just fucking sprints knees to chest towards Otis, start antagonizing him. That kind of, that kind of inside your head kind of thing. Because I think it would get quite boring with having the, all the exposition. It'd, that it would be, it'd be of,
0: like it would be like having Morgan Freeman directing Shawshank if he was the main character, the Andy character. It's like almost having narrating his own prison film.
1: Yeah, but I still think it'd be good to have like a kind of the zookeeper that. Finds him funny, obviously. Like saying, "How the fuck is this
0: cunt getting oh, out?" Oh yeah, you definitely, know? definitely. Um, I love this. I absolutely love this. That's why I'm glad we finished with this. It's the best thing. Big Hedy Houdini. <laughs> any, any, anything to more, more to add on Ken Allen? No, uh, there's nothing more. He speaks, he speaks is for himself. Is immortal. So that's what we've done. We've, um, um, thanks, thanks to everyone for your suggestions because it was great. I think it's a similar, it was great to hear other people had ideas for really interesting characters and reading through some of them and went, oh yeah, I'd love to see that movie as well. And hopefully the six that we nominated are movies that you'd also like to see. Um, but that's our, that's our list of possible biopics and uh, maybe there's the, the, the Ken Allen story. Um, Ken Allen's escape movie will be coming, coming someday to a screen near you. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson.
1: The podcast was edited in Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM. We are grateful for their continued support.
0: The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin McLeod.
1: Pump Up the Volume is available to buy on disc and rent or purchase digitally on Google Play and YouTube.
0: Claire Noto's The Tourist has its own chapter in the David Hughes book, The Greatest Sci-Fi Movies Never Made, and the script is available to read online.
1: Outside of Double Reel, you can find us both hosting a non-film-related podcast, The Adamson's Versus. Our latest episode, The Adamson's Versus the Second Amendment, is out now.
0: So this is me, James Adams, signing off and
1: this is me james adamson signing off
0: our next episode will be our regular episode 27 next month keep an eye out for any special episodes we decide to do in future
1: if you enjoyed this podcast please like and subscribe and tell your friends
0: until next time stay safe watch lots of films and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media
1: and fuck any petrol station charging two pound 38 a liter for gasoline
0: We're here to go ugh, fucking twat. And get through the first fucking paragraph.
1: You can do it. <laughs> just talking. Just start it.